Hello, Marcus. Welcome back. You went away for uh, about a week. Everything seemed to go crazy here while you were gone. Indeed. I'm overwhelmed, but uh, I was just away over the weekend. I had to travel to Berlin, Germany. Oh man, and how much did I miss my beloved California because I had almost forgotten how cold Berlin can be. And we almost drowned in all the rain. So anyway, uh, we were going to try to tighten up this podcast. Our goal for Yanks and Krauts has been to get our podcast down to half an hour. Too much crazy stuff happening this week and too much sad and really serious stuff going on. Well, let's see what we can do. Austin, let's go. I'm Austin and my co-host is Marcus. This is Krauts and Yanks. Yanks and Krauts. Okay. How about a lightning round today? We'll take turns introducing a topic. We'll set a timer. We'll go until the bell. Sounds good to me, Austin. First topic, tragic and serious. Marcus, while you're away, it looks like Vladimir Putin, Russia's president, uh, finally killed, ended the life of um, Alexei Navalny. What are the implications? I think uh, there are no direct implications for Putin, but it shows again and again who we are dealing with here. A brutal dictator who has long since bid farewell to the international community. Putin is ostracized in the West. A return to this circle doesn't seem to be possible for him, I think, as long as he's alive. And at least most of the world seems to understand uh, that uh, he is responsible for Navalny's death. Um, Navalny has been repeatedly harassed in recent years for rather abstruse reasons. He has at least uh, been poisoned twice. And uh, Putin, he's not dumb. And Putin quickly realized that Navalny had something that he was lacking. Navalny had charisma and he was a very courageous person. And these are two components that the Kremlin boss was not comfortable with. Uh, democratic norms, uh, have long since ceased to apply in Russia that we have to know as well. Elections, for example, are uh, considered rigged. Um, there is uh, no free press anymore in Russia. And Putin has managed to silence any opposition in this country. However, uh, Navalny's death uh, also shows that Putin himself was apparently afraid of an opposition figure who was imprisoned in a penal camp hundreds of miles away from Moscow near the Arctic Circle. Yes, and not only um, was he sent very far away uh, where he died, uh, his mother took the trip to Siberia and Russian officials tried to coerce her into having a secret funeral. Uh, otherwise, they would not release the body and they have not released the body. So she has had no ability to try to get an independent autopsy or to plan a funeral. And they supposedly actually just threatened her with letting the body decay um, and or doing something else with the body. And they were, apparently were very cryptic with her. Uh, also, on the streets of uh, Russia and cities like Moscow, people who went to put flowers at various shrines for Navalny have been arrested. So, uh, so that's what's going on over there. Trump, on our side of the, uh, the world, as usual, made this hero's death all about himself. He and his words, well, actually, I, I'm not going to get his words exactly right because they're, they're, the construction is so hard to actually recreate. Maybe we can find a, a tape of it, but he has been Navalny'd. Uh, he basically said, we have a Navalny here too, and he's Navalny. And, um, and not only, uh, you know, are we doing a Navalny on him, but uh, the American judicial system is also fascist and communist all in one sentence. Very confused message from President Trump. Putin responded in an interview yesterday uh, saying he would prefer Biden be elected. So he really means Trump. Yeah, of course. We... we <laughs> can't believe that and i'm i'm 100 sure that the russians are already preparing to interfere with the elections in november here in the us and and what trump uh, uh, is saying can no longer be taken seriously at all 
as uh, you would expect, Trump hasn't condemned Putin in a single sentence for Navalny's death. And that shows to me that he's willing to uh, sacrifice. And in doing so, he's bringing the United States closer to Putin's dictatorial regime. A president like, uh, for example, Ronald Reagan uh, would probably turn in his grave and a John McCain would have gone for uh, Trump's throat. But uh, Austin, let me quickly tell you uh, how I heard um, of Navalny's death last so you week were, you on, were in on Europe Friday. Yeah, happened, right. right? I, okay. I just had arrived at the airport in Berlin. And uh, just as I was getting into my Uber to the hotel, the breaking news came in of Navalny's death. And a good 20 minutes later, when I was in my hotel room, I turned on the television and Uh, on, on some of the news channels, they broadcasted the press conference of Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, who was just in Berlin to visit uh, and to meet with the German Chancellor Scholz. And they both were speaking uh, in that press conference and, and both politicians condemned Putin. And they were, you could see it, visibly affected by the news. And then like a good half hour later, um, 500 miles to the south, uh, the security conference was taking place in Munich, the, the famous security conference that uh, uh, always takes place in February. Um, and that's, that conference, uh, um, Navalny's widow was attending that conference. And I, I still get goosebumps uh, when I talk about it. She came on stage. It was broadcasted on television. Um, that conference is always taking place at the Hotel Bayerischer Hof. And uh, she was going to the microphone. It was not planned. And she wanted to speak after she got the news of her husband's death. And in her speech, she called for Putin's punishment. And it was, she was very brave uh, in that moment. It, it was I mean, very, that very was, moving. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, after her speech, she received uh, standing ovations for several minutes. And uh, many of the state guests, they were... Yeah, deeply moved, and and that was and that kind of the the fact that the Republicans didn't approve that military aid package for Ukraine overshadowed that security conference in Munich. That's what the media in in Europe wrote, and everybody was speaking about it. And of course, the other news that uh, Navalny has died that really overshadowed that. Uh, news conference that became even more important. So uh, today uh, on this topic, and I was also very moved by her uh, by her speech. Um, the uh, president of the U.S. Uh, Biden talked about some new sanctions, um, but I think it's generally understood that the main thing the world could do, the U.S. could do, if we really wanted to punish or to produce Putin's power in the world or his attempt to gain power in the world would be to support the Ukrainians uh, in their military efforts, which I believe we still haven't worked out. Yeah. I mean, what, what I, what many politicians who were at the security conference and uh, there, what they said and, and what I read in European newspapers was the Europeans are able to provide enough money to Ukraine. The main problem currently is that factories that produce defense goods like ammunition, like uh, equipment to, to, for, for the soldiers in Ukraine, that they don't have that many factories that are able to produce all this ammunition and, and the stuff that they need in, in, in Ukraine to, to fight the Russian soldiers. And that's the main problem. It's not so much about finances, about not having enough money. That's not the problem. But the only country who's capable of producing a lot of ammunition, who has the resources right now, are the Americans. And it's not money that the U.S. would spend On the Ukraine and the Ukrainians use that money somewhere else, that money practically would never, or a large portion of that money would practically never leave the US because it's being spent uh, for, for buying weapons and ammunition for the war in Ukraine. So it's 
even more like uh, so appalling and so sad that Congress is not able to. It, it's sad they're not supporting this uh, effort at this, you know, albeit an imperfect, but a growing, budding democracy. Uh, it's also sad that a war somewhere in the world ends up being good for our economy. Uh, but that is the, the way it is. You know, um, also, you know, one thing about, you know, Zabalny too, uh, I'm guessing he's not perfect, but it's this idea of evolution. What countries, what people were moving in a positive direction for humanity? Who was moving toward democracy? Um, I kind of, you know, uh, there's this complaint among Republicans. I think they're kind of letting this go because they've seen the her heroism of, of Ukrainians. But, you know, Ukraine was a corrupt c country. Yeah, probably, but a corrupt country that was becoming less corrupt and, and now is. That you know, happened to all the Eastern, the, the, the all, countries of the former East Bloc, you, you Poland, Czechoslovakia. They had, corruption was a big topic well, there. And the choice is the kleptocracy of Russia. You want to see a country that just oh, yeah. wallowed in corruption and embraced right. it. I mean, this this is what what you know other countries are are, are trying to fight. Anyway, yeah, it is sad. Um, you know, it's sad that uh, a war in Ukraine actually ends up being good for our economy, but the Ukrainians certainly could use the uh, use our factories. You mentioned that the Germans were also going to maybe. I actually heard this about the U.S. as well that there are defense companies that would. Um, probably add uh, add factory space if if this funding because this funding was it was for Ukraine but there was also uh, money in there for Taiwan and Israel Israel yes so anyway there were, there were companies I uh, that were looking at in increasing their production to meet the demands of of this uh, money from Congress if it ever comes out of Congress. Was Germany trying to do the same thing you mentioned? Yeah, Germany decided to to help companies to set up more production facilities. There was just uh, in recent weeks a groundbreaking ceremony somewhere in the northern part of Germany for a new factory to build uh, ammunition. And the Germans used to be after reunification in 1990 on that trip that we don't need more weapons and everybody is going to be peaceful in Europe and we all live together as a big community and there will be no more wars in Europe. And that assumption was unfortunately dead wrong. And now the French, the Germans, the British and other European nations are trying to um, set up and, and, and improve their defense capabilities. And that also means they a lot of money will pour into uh, a whole new defense infrastructure. Um, they will be, there will be more and more factories that are able to build ammunition for artillery. And uh, so, but it will take a, a couple of, of years. They, uh, experts say it, it needs at least three, but most probably five years until Europe is kind of back uh, of Cold War times in the 80s where they had lots of soldiers, but also the capability to produce enough um, ammunition, for example. Well, it's too bad, too, because, uh, you know, maybe Europe could have entered a prolonged period of peace had it not been for Putin. Um, so anyway, I, I, uh, isn't there a bell that's supposed to go yeah. off or something? <laughs> Let's talk about some, some other topic, uh, Austin Fonny Villas. She's been uh, put on the witness stand by Trump attorneys in an effort to impeach Georgia's case against Trump for trying to steal the election in that state in 2020. Austin, what are your thoughts? So I did watch her, um, her uh, testimony on the witness stand, uh, quite dramatic. So a little, a little background, uh, Georgia charged Trump and some of his conspirators uh, for their efforts to steal the election in Georgia. You might remember that uh, the president at the time, Trump, made a phone call to the Secretary of State, Raffen I can't say it. Raffensperger. There you go. Um, and uh, tried to pressure him into falsifying the number of votes. Republicans tried to seat uh, fake electors and, and so on. Fonnie Willis maybe said it best uh, when she was on the witness stand. Uh, 
Uh, she said that she was not on trial. I think we have uh, the exchange. I think we have. I very much want to be here, so I'm not a hostile witness. I very much want to be not here. Not so much that you're hostile, Ms. Willis, it'd be an adverse witness. Your interests are opposed to Ms. Merchant's. Thank Ms. You. Merchant's interests are contrary to democracy, Your Honor, not to mine. So your office objected to us getting um, Delta records for flights that you may have taken with Mr. Wade. Well, no, 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 look. Uh, I object to you getting records. You've been intrusive into people's personal lives. You're confused. You think I'm on trial. These people are on trial for trying to steal an election in 2020. I'm not on trial, no matter how hard you try to put me on trial. So this is the way I see it. Uh, I'm going to use a metaphor here. So um, imagine that we find out the coach of the Kansas City uh, Chiefs football team. You might have heard of them. Sure. Super Bowl. I, yeah, I think isn't like uh, Taylor Swift's on that team or something. Uh, the boyfriend. <laughs> so so anyway, so we got this football team. Uh, they're quite good. Uh, imagine now that the coach has a, a really um, uh, well-developed, serious relationship with one of the players. I'm not saying there's anything going on between them, but, you know, they go fishing. They take fishing vacations. They hang out. They drink beer, you know. And, and someone just thinks it's just a little too much, you know, maybe, maybe there's just something going on, you know, because the coach also helps set the player's salary. I'm sure he's at least consulted and, you know, and, and this maybe quarterback that he's friends with is getting very well paid. And his recommendation has some influence. Of oh, course. Ab absolutely. You know, you're, you're the coach. So someone, you know, gets upset at the closeness of this relationship and they, uh, they go to management and they say, Hey, look, maybe he's getting kickbacks or something. Now, by the way, this is all theoretical. This is just uh, an analogy that I'm using. So we have this situation on this team. Two of the players are a, a little bit, maybe too close for some people's comfort. So, okay, now imagine another team, like the 49ers. You've heard of them? Of course, Austin. We're in California. We are proud of the 49ers. And they're our local team? Of course. They're the San Francisco 49ers, yes. even though they play in Santa Clara, I believe. Okay. Anyway, so another important team. I, I think they did pretty well this year. They how, did. How far did they go? Austin. Super Bowl. Oh, that's right. They were at it. So the two best teams in the country. So imagine someone on the 49ers says, hey, you know what? I don't like what's going on over there at the Chiefs. They got like a couple of guys that are way too close to each other. It's like the coach and the quarterback. You know, I, I think that mutually the two of them, they get together and they just hate on San Francisco. Nice analogy. And, and that's, and you know, they just want to beat us, you know, and, but, but there's something, you know, they're just too close. And, and, you know, I think they're just trying to make a bunch of money. They're just trying to make a bunch of money off of this. So I think the 49ers shouldn't have to play them. We should get to play a, a more neutral team, a team where, you know, they're not so buddy-buddy and they don't hate us so much. I, I, think, uh, I think the 49ers should get to play the Carolina Panthers. Yeah, that'd make it fair. So I think you're getting my point here. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Maybe Fonnie Willis did the wrong thing. I, I, I don't know if I believe that. I think a lot of people just have animosity toward her. Uh, I'll say something about that in a second. But it's only in law and government where people think they get to pick their opponent. Like, you know, oh, the prosecutor has a bias against me. I want a different prosecutor. Or I want a different judge. I want a different venue. O only in government and in law does that happen. I, I mean, Coca-Cola doesn't get to pick who their competitors are. Their competitors probably hate them. I'm sure two people at Pepsi are hanging out together. You know, I mean, to ahead. play the, the devil's advocate here, you, I think the only argument that you would have is to question her character. But I think, and, and I have to add, Austin, uh, the, the whole um, process or the, the court case was broadcasted on YouTube and on, on television here in the US. And I was following it. And uh, she decided to to go to the witness stand and and to you know uh being questioned by trump's lawyers and that was so brave and she in my opinion i'm not a lawyer i don't have uh, any clue how the how if, if if she really was good but she came across as somebody who was sincere who was she came across as a fighter and I was really impressed by her appearance and by her, uh, the, by the stuff she said when she was uh, in the witness room. You know, and, and 
there, there's so many parts of this, uh, you, you know, so as the head prosecutor, she's probably not in a lot of the day to day stuff that's happening in the courtroom. Um, they were trying to keep essentially her out of this, uh, her, you know, the, 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 uh, prosecutory team was, was basically trying to say that, you know, she as a witness would be irrelevant and so on. She eventually just said, okay, I've had enough. I'm going to go to court and I'm going to, you know, have this conversation. And she was uh, on a different floor or on the same floor. She has her office in the same building and she was following it on television and then decided to uh, become a witness and go, and, and go to the witness stand. Right? <laughs> I, I didn't know this right? part, but she's, yeah, yeah, she's just like, I've, that's what I've, I've had enough. Yeah, yeah. I've had enough. I'm going to go down and then, there. Yeah, and she she appeared in the courtroom and said, "I'm I'm willing to 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 be uh, to be questioned." Yeah, you know, everything involving her to me is a red herring. Okay, it's a distraction from the actual case. You know, let let's let's be clear. the The actual case is about whether or not Trump and the many. I, I'm trying to remember how many people were indicted with him on this thing. A lot. We got like 13, 14, 15 yeah. people. The, 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 the case is whether or not they tried to steal the election in the state of Georgia. It's not about whether or not she's a good boss. It's not about whether or not she had a relationship with somebody. It's honestly not even about whether or not she's stealing money from the cat, you know, from the state. I, I don't think she is, but I'm saying at the end of the day, that's not the game. Matter. Yeah. yeah. The Super Bowl is happening no matter what's happening, you know, with the coaching staff, the Super Bowl is going to happen. So, and, and, you know, and something else too, that, that I think we keep forgetting this there, you know, this is one of the problems with the, the, the day we live in. It does not get mentioned enough that everybody or nearly everybody that's a witness in any of these cases, most of the complainants, these are Republicans. These are Republicans. It, you know, it, it was Republicans in the state of Georgia that, that, you know, brought this claim forward. It's the Republican state secretary who, you know, taped Trump trying to, you know, bully him into changing votes. The witnesses are Republicans. The people on on Trump's staff who are coming forward and and talking about what was happening, they're all Republicans. This is not a Democratic conspiracy. This is this is a bunch of Republicans who've you know, their conscience has gotten the best of them. So, I mean, uh, Austin, yeah. I think the, what Team Trump, if, if I may call them, the, what they are trying to do is just to prolong the whole process. Yes. Yeah. And there's another component, too, that, that there's a couple more things I want to say about this. One is that, you know, there are people that think, uh, you know, there's so many cases. I, I heard this from potential voters who are being interviewed uh, in, in uh, South Carolina for the primary. They're, they're saying, well, all of these cases against Trump, it's conspiracy against them. They're just out to get them. You know, Trump just crimes a lot. I'm, I'm using that as a verb. He just crimes a lot. You know, if you rob 10 banks, you can't be upset. In okay, let me go back. If you rob 10 banks in 10 different states, you can't be upset that you get charged for 10 bank robberies in 10 different states. So, you know, there's that going on. Anyway, so the Fonnie Willis thing. Oh, yeah, one more thing about her. Um, she was angry. And she may even have acted inappropriately. And, you know, if you think she's inappropriate, refer her to human resources, you know, send her to the human resources department, say, look, she had a relationship with this guy and, you know, she's talking impolitely to people. But here's the thing. When a man gets angry, people see it as strength. We've done this study. We know this to be true. When a woman gets angry, she's seen as hysterical or bitchy. And, and I've seen this, I've seen it in the workplace. And then, and then you, you, you have this expectation. So there's this expectation that women are supposed to behave in, in a different way. They're not supposed to get angry. They're supposed to be gentle and somewhat, you know, subservient and then throw in the fact that she's a black woman. So on two levels for a lot of, especially white men in this country, she's behaving against stereotype. She, and honestly, I, I didn't think she was that angry. I mean, I could see how people would interpret it as anger. Um, a couple of times, a couple of times, I, I I'm like, there, there's a flash of anger. Yeah, but she, see, she showed a, that. She, but, you but could that's see the it thing. But that's a that's normal the thing. Reaction. If you close your eyes mm. 
and pictured a man doing that, you'd think, oh, the boss is just really serious about this. And you wouldn't think, oh, boarding on hysterical, which is, I think, what happens when, when people see a woman getting angry. They see it as, as more than just being forceful or strong. Anyway. But she also came across as somebody who loves her job. She came across as someone who really advocates for the stuff that she's prosecuting. And uh, I think that was a really good part. I, I, we saw a prosecutor who was aggressive, and we want that from prosecutors, don't we? That they pursue uh, criminals uh, as much as possible, as hard as they can, can do. And I, I think she showed that quality, and that's a great quality for a prosecutor, If there's I evidence guess. to suspect a crime, and I believe there is. Of we course. have plenty of habeas corpus here, then I want the prosecutor to, to be assertive, as assertive as possible. I know we have a system that protects, you know, the criminal's rights and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, I completely agree. Um, also, I learned something else. This is a, kind of a side note. And again, I, I don't want to make this uh, mostly a racial issue. I, I don't think it is, although I do think that some of Trump's uh, animosity toward, I mean, he's mentioned it more than once that the uh, Fonnie Willis and the prosecutor in New York, also a black woman, that they are racist. Um, he had an issue with an Hispanic judge at one point, uh, an American person of Hispanic descent. I think it was Mexican-American. Um, so I, I'm going to touch on the race thing for a second. I was reminded that the black experience in this country is very different from the white experience. When she was talking about keeping large amounts of cash, I was reminded that for many, many years, including her father's generation not long ago, black people could not trust white institutions to look out for them. You couldn't trust the police if you were a black person. You couldn't trust the bank. And that was one of the things that kind of came out through this that I think was completely lost upon the, uh, the defendants. I want to say Trump's team, but I don't know if you noticed she was, you know, uh, questioned by like five or six people for almost every question because everybody who's a co-defendant with Trump has their own attorney, but they didn't see that. They didn't see it coming. They didn't get it. They thought, Oh, we've caught this person hoarding, you know, they're, they're dealing in cash. They're dealing in cash. Makes complete sense if you're coming from a background where you couldn't trust the bank. Austin, By the way, somebody, my mom dealt in cash. Austin, as someone who is from a different continent, who's been living here for seven years, that thought didn't occur to me when I was watching the trial or the hearing. And now you're absolutely right. I'm, I'm, I'm shocked. Yeah, I was, I was stumbling upon that fact as well when I heard it. Hey, why does a, a relatively young woman keep so much cash at home? That is indeed very unusual. And I might not believe it now, but since you said that and you gave me the background, I think you're absolutely right. And, and she always um, said during the hearing that her father told her, hey, keep cash at home. You have to have uh, 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 cash at home. And, and oh, wow. Yeah. It, it's partly generational. And I think it's yeah, yeah. partly the experience of people who aren't part of the, the, the kind of the white culture. Uh, my mother, an immigrant to this country, dealt in cash all the time. Uh, kind of didn't believe in credit cards, letting, you know, didn't want to owe, also didn't want people to necessarily know her business. She came out of Europe during the war and she dealt with fascists and people spying on each other and so on. Uh, I, I knew, knew another guy whose father was an Irish immigrant, dealt in cash all the time. Anyway, uh, it, let's, let's move on. But before we do, I have a thought exercise. Okay. Are you ready? Go ahead, Austin. Are you ready for this? Okay. Yeah. So, okay. We're gonna, it's going to be like one of those things where you sort of visualize. Yeah. So maybe you close your eyes. Imagine Donald Trump, Fonnie Willis, Elizabeth Cheney, Nancy Pelosi, trapped and stuck in an elevator together. Okay. 
The door is closed. The power goes out. The emergency light comes on. There they are. That group of people stuck together for a long time. I would love if Saturday Night Live would create some dialogues about such a scene. But still, I think that is so unlikely it will never happen but the thought is uh, quite uh, okay, intriguing so, so take a moment and just picture that scene are you picturing that scene yes and now what austin that's it just imagine that all right okay next marcus what about this double uh agent from russia codename vodka uh, yeah it almost sounds agent like double o vodka uh, double o vodka it almost sounds like uh More like a story out of a James Bond movie than a sophisticated spy novel a la uh, John Le Carré. Alexander Smirnov, that's the name of uh, the Russian spy or at least the person who worked as an informant uh, for the FBI and had a uh, handler uh, by the FBI for years. The Russian Secret Service uh, apparently fed him a lot of false information, which he passed on uh, to the FBI and uh, to the Americans. And uh, the FBI allegedly knew all of this. And this makes the whole case a lot more inexplicable to me. And uh, the, the, the worst thing about it, the Republicans in the House um, are still holding on to the shady information that they received uh, from Smirnov. And uh, he is their main witness uh, against uh, Hunter and Joe Biden for the impeachment trial that they want to bring up. Um, and it sometimes feels like uh, Don Quixote tilting at windmills against uh, his better judgment. You know, uh, first of all, James Bond movies make more sense than, than this. And, and I'm oh, yeah. saying that from the perspective of I usually can't figure out what's going on in a James Bond movie. But I kind of feel like this is, uh, you know, when you catch somebody at a party doing something they're not supposed to be doing, they're like looking in the medicine cabinet. Maybe they're in the refrigerator. They're just doing something they're not. And, and you see them. And they kind of freeze and you know what you need to do is you just need to look away and pretend you didn't see them. And you do that so they can just walk away quietly. They just want to walk away and pretend no one saw anything. I kind of feel like the Republicans are moving in that direction. I think if we just look the other way for like a day or two, this Hunter Biden thing might go away on its own. Uh, maybe some of these people aren't smart enough to, to take the opportunity to cut so. and run. I don't think so. I mean, when you ask the typical uh, Republicans if they want to go on with their impeachment trial, they are dead sure that the, uh, all the things that they brought up based on Smirnov's testimony, that that is still the truth. Although the FBI told them, hey guys, this man was fed by Russian intelligence. He got his information from Russian intelligence. And of course, how many times do we have to say that Russia has an interest to um, make Biden look bad? Because, I mean, it's so stupid, but I think Putin has a certain interest that uh, Trump becomes president again and, and not Biden. And My, now, I, I saw a timeline that suggested that um, this guy's information got more anti-Biden uh, uh, right after Biden announced um, more, you know, originally this Sanctions go back uh, two Ukraine years ago. Way. Right, right, exactly. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I still kind of, I, I still, you know, I, I still feel like... The congressman shows up at a party with like this hot woman. This is my new girlfriend. And you go, oh yeah, he's a Russian spy. And the congressman looks at you, blink, blink, blink. And you just walk away so he can walk away. <laughs> you know, yeah, caught him doing something in bear. I still, I, anyway, that's my fantasy. But Austin, do we know if the FBI warned the Republicans? My understanding is they were leery of him as a source, and I 
think let's see if I heard what I heard. If uh, I believe they started to rely less on him and that's when he developed a direct channel with Congress so that there were Congress people that were communicating directly with this guy and the, the FBI might have sent some warnings out, um, basically just saying, you know, this guy is a, an agent and so the FBI knew that he received lots of information from Russians, Russian intelligence. I think some of that and came they, up and, more and, recently, but I think early on they were aware that it was un, uh, what do they call it? Uh, unanalyzed information, unfiltered information. And they downplayed it because they thought it's not that important. But uh, the, the Republicans in Congress, they thought, oh my gosh, we found our source. There was a point where this guy Smirnoff had direct contact with Congress people like they had each other's phone numbers. That's what I've heard. So we'll kind of see how that develops. Anyway, Jesus. you know, he, uh, what well, he was picked up and then he was released by a judge and then he was rearrested yesterday. Yeah. So, um, because like, a judge in California issued a new uh, warrant. Yeah. So Smirnoff is back in the liquor cabinet. <laughs> I'm sorry. Austin, you're you, full of analogies today. <laughs> uh, we have to talk about another topic um, in another state, Alabama. Austin, please uh, bring us up to date on, on that other case on in vitro fertilization. Given my, my, uh, my, my limits here, I, I am a man talking about a, you know, a topic that we probably should have a, a woman with us at least, but I will say I have uh, known some people who've done in vitro and know probably more about it than I ever thought I would know. Also, I was listening to Tommy Tuberville, man, a senator from Alabama. This happened in Alabama. The senator from Alabama yesterday clueless about what's going on. So I'm going to call this the Tommy Tuberville education moment. Tommy, listen up. So this actually starts with a bit of a tragedy. A couple in, Al uh, in Alabama that was doing in vitro because they really wanted a baby. They were kind of pro-life. They wanted to bring life into this world. I, I don't know where their politics were on this, but they were trying to have a baby. And they wanted a baby so much that when they were not having a baby... Through regular means, they were doing in vitro. So we're not talking about abortion. We're talking about the opposite. They want to have a baby. Well, it, it didn't start as an abortion-related uh, issue, but it's going to become one. It's becoming one. So uh, there was an accident in the hospital. I believe an employee dropped uh, a, a, a container of um, in vitro uh, fertilized of embryos. Uh, embryos. Mm -hmm. So uh, their embryos were destroyed and they sued the hospital for uh, effectively destroying their chance to have a, a, a child. Uh, this was going to be their child. They saw these embryos as their child. This ended up being reviewed um, uh, in the state Supreme Court and the state Supreme, because basically what it came down to, uh, they were going to sue for wrongful death. There was an accident at the hospital due to the hospital's negligence that killed our children and they were suing and a state Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court in Alabama had ruled that these, uh, correct, that, that this could be a wrongful death lawsuit because uh, the court determined that the embryos were humans. They were babies. So... So what's happened is, and, and I don't know how the couple would feel about this and I wouldn't want to invade their, their privacy, but okay, so let's do a little background on this. Uh, I, I believe I, I saw in the news that something like 600,000, there are like, like 600,000 embryos frozen in the country right now. I'm going to talk a little bit about how in vitro happens because there's almost, okay, so let me just do that. So a uh, person's having a hard time having a child. Maybe it's because the uh, father's uh, sperm are inactive. Um, they're not swimming well. They're not, you know, they're not strong enough to penetrate. They're not getting enough sperm at one time to find an egg. What's happening in the woman is every month a woman's ovaries produce um, many eggs. Maybe as many as 15, 20 might be coming to the surface. Usually one or two uh, grow more quickly, grow first. They pop off. 
they go down the fallopian tubes, and if a sperm finds those eggs, they become embryos. If the embryo implants, the person has a chance of having a baby. There are plenty of things that can go wrong. When a person does in vitro, they stimulate the ovaries with um, hormones so that more eggs will reach that point of uh, being useful, uh, you know, uh, being the ones that a, a sperm would be able to, to attach to. So instead of maybe two or three embryos coming off, they might get 15, maybe even 20 in some cases, depending on how old the woman is and what the issue is. So they, they wait till the eggs uh, grow and, uh, and develop. They remove the eggs. Now, uh, de depending on the, the case, uh, but if there's a reason to fertilize the eggs outside of the body, this is what they're doing. They'll, there's a couple of ways to do this. Um, they'll fertilize those eggs. They will then watch those eggs to see which ones are, are growing. At, uh, at some point, you know, they go from, you know, uh, one cell to two cells to four to eight. And I don't remember exactly what the number is, but somewhere around a hundred something cells, they start to form a, a little round ball. That's the picture we usually see. And that's when we really start thinking of these as, as, as embryos. These are eggs that if they're implanted in a uterus, they could possibly grow. So the hospital has, let's say 20 fertilized uh, eggs, 20 embryos. They're not going to put 20 on the woman because they don't want a woman having quintuplets, especially someone who's already demonstrated that they're having a hard time with pregnancy. So they'll pick somewhere between three and five of usually the largest ones, and they will implant those. If one of those adheres to the uterus, starts to grow, woman becomes pregnant, hopefully everything goes well, they have a child. They now have 15 embryos left over. The reason why you keep those embryos may be the second child. Whatever the problem was having a child the first time, that problem still exists. So you can now go back, and I know people have done this, uh, two years later, remove five more embryos and plant one of them, and you have a second child. Or maybe one of the attempts doesn't work. That is typically the case. A person might get 15, 20 embryos, they implant three, nothing happens. They implant three more, nothing happens. They implant three more, maybe they get a child. They come back two years later, they implant three, nothing happens. Now they're down to their last three eggs. So you can see the reason why people would store their eggs. Now, oh, it's not store their, sorry, store their embryos. So here is the problem for the hospitals. Here's the problem in Alabama. Every hospital that's sitting on a bunch of um, embryos now has to, according to the court, look at it as if they have a bunch of children in a freezer. All right. Usually what happens, let's say the first two attempts work. You start off with 20 embryos, you use three or five get a baby. Second time works, you get a baby. Maybe something happens after that. Maybe the initial problem was uh, uh, the woman had a, a, a condition that was going to make her infertile later in life. She was going to have to have a hysterectomy. You know, now she can't have children. There are 10 embryos left. What to do with them? In the past, they just discarded them. There were little clumps of cells. There was nothing in the cell that said head or heart or fingernail. They were effectively just a group of cells that could become anything. Yeah, you know, people, some people had reservations about this, but, but the hospital at some point just discarded them. And now the hospitals have a big problem because they, they can't do that. They can't do that anymore. And they, they see the embryos as potential human beings. As frozen human beings. So this is the, the, Unintended, or maybe, I don't know. Well, here's the problem. I think for some people it was intended, for others, less intended. I don't know what the original couple would think about this. They wanted to have a child, they were using in vitro, but now hospitals are saying, we can't do in vitro anymore because we haven't solved this problem of what to do with the remaining embryos. 
we can, you know, I can go on about this for probably too long. They're like some places plant too many embryos and then you end up with people having, you know, twins or triplets. And then they have to talk about maybe aborting a baby so that, you know, the pregnancy will be successful. It's a complicated issue. It, you almost cannot avoid ending up with extra embryos if in vitro is done correctly. Do you think that the Alabama Supreme Court decision would have happened without the recent ruling of the Supreme Court in D.C.? Without uh, Roe v. Wade? That's interesting. Ruling? I think it's part of, uh, of a moment in our culture where there's an emboldened right to life group. And maybe this is what was happening. I believe this. I, I think there is some history of, with the judge on this court that is looking for ways to push the definition of human life all the way back to the embryo. Because what this now opens the door to is you can now outlaw the morning after pill. So the morning after pill was becoming one of the last methods of uh, terminating a pregnancy in some of these states that were, you know, outlawing abortion in every other way. So now, if you have a fertilized embryo in your body, maybe it hasn't even implanted yet. It's not attached to anything. There's a chance it'll die in the fallopian tube and it'll just be absorbed and it'll disappear. But once there's a fertilized embryo in you, if you take the morning after pill to make sure that embryo does not implant, to destroy that embryo, to avoid pregnancy, you're now guilty of murder. So what has happened is uh, right to lifers now are, could use this, will use this to prevent a person from even using the, you know, the morning after pill as a way to prevent pregnancy. Because if they use the pill, they can be accused of murder. Why does that remind me of Margaret Edwards' uh, book, The Handmaid's Tale, Austin? Well, an issue with The Handmaid's Tale, right, is, is women have no rights. By the way, The Handmaid's Tale, um, Margaret Atwood was inspired to write that partly by visiting uh, Afghanistan under the Taliban. And the, the thought exercise in her head was, could this happen in North America, Canada, and the United States? And that's what got her to start writing that, that story. That you, you, know, you first freeze women's uh, bank accounts, their assets, you start taking away their rights. And you get to the point where you're controlling either, even the birth cycle. Women no longer have a choice about when and where and if they're going to have children. They're basically used as uh, machines that are able to give birth. Yes, yes. So, um, you know, what's going to happen with this? I don't know. Um, you know, the, the plan B pill is, uh, is off the table now. Actually, it, it, a lot of things are up in the air in Alabama right now. I, you know, and there... <laughs> I don't know if I just want to stir things up. I'm not just trying to be a wise ass, but you know, I was thinking Alabama is one of those states where if you have a child and you can't take care of the child uh, until the child's 41 days old. And by the way, the whole definition of how old a child is, you know, maybe now they have to rethink that, you know, are, are we going to start counting personhood from embryo stage? And anyway, Alabama, like many states, have the safe haven drop-off for unwanted children. If a woman has a child, she can't take care of it. She can go to any fire department, hospital, police station, and leave her child. And it's essentially no questions asked. Mm. Give it up for adoption. Well, the state then has to take responsibility for the child, and they give it up for adoption. Theoretically, right now, if you're a parent with frozen embryos in Alabama, You can ask the hospital to put your frozen embryos in a, in, a, in a travel container, in a cooler. You could take them to a fire department, leave them with a note saying, I cannot take care of these children. And the state then has to figure out what to do with them. And I don't want to make light of this whole thing about, you know, because I, you know, when people want to have children, I know how strong that desire is. I've seen it up close. But I kind of think... Someone who's ready to discard their embryos might want to try this. You know, drop them off at the judge's house. Drop them off at the courthouse. Is the state now responsible for finding uteruses for these? 
does the state now have to keep these frozen forever? Because they'll last quite a while in a frozen state. Uh, right now, by the way, parents pay for frozen storage for their embryos when they're doing uh, fertility treatments. I think also contraception is in question here if it leads to the ban of the um, day after pill. And actually, there, I, I, I think, I hope this argument's kind of extremist, but there is also uh, an extension of that, which is, you know, are they going to start backing the definition of human life all the way down to like sperm and, and eggs before, and this is maybe what you're hinting at or suggesting with this idea of contraception. You know, I, I um, maybe before we go, uh, I, I remember years ago, literally 35 years ago, I was quite young. I saw an interview with American writer, Gore Vidal, intellectual writer, interesting man. And he was asked about abortion. And this is when, before in vitro was really happening. So the issue really was just abortion and, and the idea of human life. And I'm going to explain this afterwards, but, but he said, I believe that the fertilized egg, once it's fertilized, is human life. It's human life. But I also believe a parent can abort their child until he's 18. So, I don't think it was entirely a joke. I think he was identifying a couple of the issues here that people need to grapple with. I thought it was kind of funny being a teenager at the time and, and thinking that was a fairly good response. It's definitional. We decide, you know, human life, where do you draw the line? If you take a, an embryo and implant it, a human embryo and implant it in a human uterus and treat it right, it will grow into a human. Fine. Call it human life if you want. The question becomes, at what point can a parent, particularly a mother, decide whether or not she's going to continue to nourish that material? that human life or that embryo or that fetus, whatever you want to call it, at what point are we going to tell that woman she can no longer decide what to do with it? And he brought both of those points together. Call it what you want. Yeah, if we're going to debate, you know, 16 weeks, 20 weeks, 40 weeks, nine months, let's make it 18 years. A lot of teenagers are kind of a pain in the ass and their parents, you know, regret having them. Now, I don't agree with that, obviously. And he also basically said, it's the parent's choice. I, Trump said uh, his current position on this, and, you know, he's been all over the place on this, right? Uh, right to choice, right to life, blah, blah, blah. And he changed his opinion in the so, past. So his, his current times. one just a few days ago was 16 mm -hmm. weeks. 16 weeks. And he was asked, why do you say 16 weeks? And he said, because it's a nice round number. Austin, so thank you right so much. So we're right on half an hour, right? We did exactly Absolutely. 30 minutes. Absolutely. It today. was on the point. 30 minutes. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. All right. No. Have a good day. See you next time.